Welcome back to a new episode of Digital Business Models podcast produced by 4Week MBA. In this session, I cover the history of Amazon. I do that with an incredible voice. I do that with Breadstone. You might remember Breadstone for a great book which is called The Everything Store. And this is the history of Amazon of the early days, how the company went through the dot-com bubble and actually how it thrived eventually. But Breadstone is also a journalist who has been covering the tech industry for, for decades and he's an incredible author and researcher, one of those people that you want to talk to because he's able to uncover incredible stories behind the companies that uh, he writes about. And he's been the author of the everything store Amazon Unbound, which instead is the history of Amazon in the 2010s going forward uh, up to uh, these days and then also author of the Upstars. But in this session, we covered the history of Amazon and also how this crossed, uh, of course, with the history of Jeff Bezos. It's an incredible conversation. Brad is really one of those people that is able to uh, tell you the story, the whole story in uh, uh, an objective uh, way. And so it's very interesting to look at the history of Amazon from the early days, a few key things, and also a few key things about Jeff Bezos' life. So, Brad, thanks uh, for joining this conversation. It's uh, it's a huge pleasure to to have you here. Thank you, Gennaro. Good to, good to be here. Yeah. Uh, the the topic of this conversation this conversation is actually the whole story of uh, Amazon, and uh, you put together like uh, research in two uh, great books. Uh, one is the Everything Story. The other one is uh, Amazon uh, Unbound, and. Um, you know the, the story of Amazon is very com- is very complex, and together uh, with the story of uh, Jeff Bezos, if you had to actually, uh, um, first of all, how did you get to it, and actually, how would you break down uh, in waves? I guess the the story of uh, of Amazon. Well, how did I start it? I, I I covered Amazon as a beat reporter for the New York Times. Actually, first for Newsweek magazine. Um, started look covering Amazon in the late 1990s. Um, covered the company for the New York Times. Was writing about the first Kindle, the fight with book publishers, the emergence of cloud computing. You know, in the in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And I think I just saw maybe a little bit earlier than, than most people that this company was more interesting than the world thought. You know, the world initially thought of it as an online bookseller and then an unprofitable uh, online retailer, but really it was a technology company that had established a beachhead and was moving in interesting ways and disrupting the business world as it, as it went. People thought it was unprofitable. In reality, it was investing its profits in new technologies. And it was all led by a rather ruthless and interesting and idiosyncratic guy in Jeff Bezos. And, and so looking for you know, a book project, I pitched it to Bezos and he, he, he uh, sort of allowed me, and this was the first book, The Everything Store, allowed me to talk to his colleagues and family members. And the story was fascinating and then I just kind of got hooked to it. Um, the first book, you know, is, is the origin story. It's the story of the rise and then the near fall during the dot-com bust and then the resurrection um, and Bezos's emergence as a, as a disruptive um, business visionary. And, and so, you, you know, you asked how I would break it down. I mean, that was just generally like naturally how it happened. The first book came out in 2013 and I thought I was done. But then what happened was, you know, this resurrection um, went much farther. Amazon was turned into one of the you know tech giants, the the behemoths that are uh, kind of scaring you know competitors and regulators and smaller companies, um, fighting with unions um, and uh, and expanding internationally. And so that was the second book. It kind of takes us from 2010 to the the present. It's the story of Amazon's the rise in Amazon's market capitalization from I don't know 500. Uh, million to you know now over over uh, sorry 500 billion to over a trillion. Um, it's also a little bit the story of Amazon coming back down to earth. We're talking on a day when you know the Amazon stock over the last year is probably down by 40%. So it became big and then had to contend, I think, with some of the 
uh, secondary effects and unintended consequences of its size. And it's also the, the story of Jeff Bezos's evolution from the geeky guy that we all remember who was selling books online to uh, you know, one of the titans, the richest people in the world, uh, who who is you know swirling in a fair amount of controversy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, you touched a very interesting point, especially about Amazon of the early days, and I think it's very important because uh, you said uh, you know initially uh, many people were very skeptical. They looked at Amazon and they thought Amazon was an e-commerce company, and in reality, in part, they were uh, correct, meaning that there was a huge change, right, uh, in terms of the the, the way Amazon uh, also changed these, uh, its uh, own playbook. Uh, before and after the dot-com bubble, right? Are, are there like any um, events or like, uh, you know, anything that you want to tell us about that, the way Amazon changed throughout uh, that time? During the dot-com first. Yeah. Um, During the bust. I think it, I think it exceeded a kind of desperation. Um, you know, if you go back to 2000, 2001, this is material that's in the everything store. Mm -hmm. um, it was a huge, huge comeuppance for, for Jeff Bezos. Remember, he was Time's Man of the Year at the end of 1999. Amazon was celebrated. And it then very quickly became the poster child for the kind of, a kind of hubris um, where folks just thought that the Silicon Valley had overinvested in these new business models. And all of the air came out of the bubble. And if you remember, remember even, even the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, was momentarily investigating Bezos for, um, for, for insider trading. Nothing ever came of it, but you, know, you think back, he was almost criminalized. Um, there were analysts that were predicting the company would go out of business. There was a, so so you know, here he was, one, at one time king of the world, synonymous with internet innovation, now kind of ridiculed. But there was something very real, you know, and, and, and there was a desperation to kind of figure out how to get out of it. And one of the one of the things he said to his employees back then is the only way out of this is to invent our way out. And, and so when I say a kind of desperation or even an ingenuity came out of it, that's when they started thinking about, well, the Amazon marketplace. Okay, so, so one of the, I think, the most important things about the history of Amazon is their realization that like, okay, what we do selling books or selling things online isn't, isn't that good of a business. Like they almost picked, Bezos almost picked the worst business model of the new age, right? Google and Facebook and you know, all these other companies had very high margin businesses, Bezos is, was a low margin, tough business. And so they realized that and they said, okay, well, how can, you know, we're, we're in these desperate straits. How can we take what we do and use it in other ways? And when you look at all the things Amazon's done, it's always been an answer to that question. So the Amazon marketplace, well, we sell things, maybe we can sell the things from other companies or cloud computing. We managed to run a internet operation that gets historic levels of traffic, particularly over the holidays, how can we take that expertise and sell it to other companies? Um, or the Kindle, you know, we have the biggest book selling business. How can we sell books in another way and make it even more convenient? And so I just think it's, it was the desperation of those years that made them get very good and very strategic and it's carried through to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually uh, I think there was a moment uh, um, where Amazon was really about, uh, I mean, in, on the one side, analysts were right in looking at Amazon and thinking it could fail because uh, especially in the, in the transition throughout the dot-com bubble, uh, they managed um, with a very lucky timing also to get uh, funding um, to, to actually have uh, enough cash to survive those, uh, those periods. And also, I guess, uh, you know, I don't know if you can confirm the, the playbook of Jeff Bezos changed uh, substantially because before the dot-com bubble, actually he was investing in a lot of new ventures. Uh, it was very aggressive, right, in, in terms of uh, uh, investment and placing uh, bets on the internet. And, you know, some of those um, failures are, are known, but, uh, um, you know, at the time before the, the, the crash actually was very, very, you know, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In, 
Yeah, in the 90s, I mean, Bezos was like the most, op he's always been the most optimistic guy about the changes the internet is bringing. And so early on in the 90s, they just decided, well, we can't get to everything. So let's make a bunch of bets uh, for companies that are going to do different parts of this, this vision of being an everything store. And they invested in, you know, companies selling pet food and pharmaceuticals and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And, and when, then what they realized is uh, if they can't control it, um, you know, that the outcome's not necessarily going to be good. And they ended up losing a lot of money in those investments. Mm -hmm. And who were some of the key people that uh, helped uh, Amazon, uh, you know, gain traction, especially in the early days, uh, uh, you know, among the first investors that you can uh, remind? Well, first of all, I think it's, it's worth uh, noting um, that uh, a lot of people, when Jeff Bezos was making the rounds in 1994 in Seattle, mm. a, lot of, a lot of people said no. Um, you know, he, he, he was kind of told, you know, to, uh, that his ideas were bad by a lot of people. So that, that was sort of interesting. Um, you know, the very first investors were his, were his parents, um, Jackie and, and Mike Bezos, um, and Bezos funded it himself too um and so that that's why he uh when the company went public owned around 40 percent and you know now it's it's much lower um and of course uh his his ex-wife Mackenzie scott um took about a third of his shares but um you know the folks that he there were there were a couple of seattle wealthy seattleites there was a one investor probably probably the the biggest was um a guy named tom alberg he was a, a Seattle venture capitalist, um, you know, who ended up joining the board um, and, and being help, help really bringing, a, you know, a kind of maturity uh, when, 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 when Bezos was just a young CEO. He was a VC at a, a venture capital firm called Madrona. And then famously, John Doerr, um, the, uh, the Google board member, um, you know, met with Bezos and liked his exuberance. So this was back in probably 1995 um, and, and, or six, and he backed Amazon. Um, but it wasn't unanimous, you know, the idea that you could sell things online that, you know, not a lot of people thought that that was a good business. And I think Bezos thought, you know, this is where we're going to start and who, you know, there's no telling what our future can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, definitely John Doerr played a key role, right, initially um, in, the, in the growth of Amazon, I guess, also to, uh, as, as a key, um, you know, uh, counselor of, uh, of uh, Bezos as well. Um, and um, how uh, eventually Amazon did, um, uh, you know, survive and actually managed to, to survive the, the, the first real battle against uh, Barnes uh, and Noble. I mean, how did he uh, uh, manage Amazon to get out of it and become even stronger? Yeah, it's, we're really going back because, of course, we don't even think of Barnes and Noble and Amazon in the same uh, sentence anymore. Um, they're, they're companies with just two vastly different identities. But back in the 90s, when Amazon was just a bookseller, uh, Barnes and Noble was the giant. It was also seen by a lot of folks in the book community as kind of the evil empire, which is also ironic because they're an ally. They're seen as an ally now and a hedge against Amazon. But but back then, Barnes and Noble was the giant, and there was a there was a question in the business community: when would when would Barnes and Noble just start selling books online? Um, and you know, the, at, at one point, uh, the founder Len Riggio and, and his brother went to Seattle and kind of tried to muscle Bezos a little bit, suggested kind of a kind of a sale or a partnership. Bezos met them with with Tom Alberg, the venture capitalists who we were just talking about, and and said no thanks and. Bezos had this conviction, pretty extraordinary, I think, that um, that these traditional businesses weren't going to be really be able to get the internet, or that the internet would be so disruptive to the way they did things that they wouldn't really be able to dig in and satisfy customers in the same way. And the idea is, like, if you're Burns and Noble and you've got all this real estate, you really want to undermine your that investment by just packaging books and shipping them out. And it turned out they were right, you know, that, that Barnes & Noble, and we saw this across the, across the business community, like traditional companies were slow to get the internet, um, took, them, took them a decade maybe. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that was kind of the first victory. Now, like a video game, at every, after it cleared every level, there was a different bad guy. 
right? And so that Barnes and Noble might have been the first, but then it was Walmart, and then it was Google, and you know now it's probably Microsoft plus Google and and probably Apple as well. Yeah, and uh, uh, there was a time where actually Jeff Bezos was about uh, to, or at least probably thought uh, to retire already after a few years of running Amazon, but then they, he, he had to uh, get back, um, you know, to 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 run the company. Um, how was uh, you know the the transition for Jeff Bezos and you know to just get back to to the company in the early two thousand and. Uh, the way he led it uh, going forward. I mean, uh, you know, when do you think there was like really a change in pace for Amazon after the the dot com bubble? Yeah, it's, it's a, this is a, an interesting time in, in Amazon history. Um, we're talking about probably the year two thousand. Bezos and Mackenzie had their first child, uh, Preston Bezos, and. Um, and there was this idea maybe that Jeff was gonna lead out a little bit, that they would bring in a professional manager. I think it was partly personal. It was probably the board kind of nudging him aside. Back then venture capitalists like to do that. Um, the, the company stock price was cratering. There was a sense that there was a lot of internal chaos. Um, and, 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 and then they brought in a, a, a professional manager, a guy named Joe Galloway from, I think it was, Black and Decker, but again, this is material in, in my first Amazon book, The Everything Store, so it's been a while. And 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 uh, and Galai came in, he immediately sort of kind of started to clash with all the, the all the young internet whippersnappers that Bezos had hired. And and no surprise, Bezos sort of figured that okay, this this semi-retirement uh, partnership with this other executive was not going to fly. And he came back with a full head of steam won the battle with the venture capitalists um, and, 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 and this is, was a critical moment because it's when, he really, it's when he really showed them that he could adapt. You know, this is a young Jeff Bezos. He had done nothing but grow and hire and, and come up with new ideas. And then, you know, after this moment, after the stock price had fallen, after the internet crash, he, he, Joe Galloway left very quickly. Bezos resumed total control, and he showed himself capable of managing the business during a downturn, but also spawning new businesses and new ideas, because it's at that moment that the internet marketplace starts, that leads to the idea of fulfillment by Amazon, you know, what we do in these warehouses, we can do for other companies, that leads, you know, very quickly to Prime, and the promise of two-day delivery, and then the Kindle, and that's, this is, this is really one of the, one of the most uh, I think, remarkable winning streaks in business history. I mean, I think after Apple and the iPod, the iPad, the iPhone, uh, you know, you'd have to say this period in Amazon history, Marketplace, Prime, Fulfillment by Amazon, the Kindle and Alexa, oh, and of course, Amazon AWS yes, is, yeah. is, is remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but before before we get to that, because of course uh, those are extremely successful uh, business units, and uh, uh, AWS has become a company in its own sake. Uh, what were some? Because uh, you know, many many times uh, Bezos highlighted uh, how to get to to those uh, successes. Actually, there were many other uh, failures. What are some of the failures that it's worth remembering that also cost the Amazon a lot of money and that? Uh, were very hard to digest for for Jeff Bezos. Yeah, so the early failures. Um, I mean, there were there were a lot. You know, Bezos was like capable of chucking out a new idea every single day, and you know he likes to talk about some of the early attempts to to copy eBay as uh, as sort of humbling failures. I mean, Amazon that it's what led them to marketplace. So I I don't really know. You know that you might you, you would consider it a failure, or or maybe you'd say in a lot of different cases they learn from their failures and and help them get to things that worked. Um, but um, I don't know. There were certainly there were some product categories early on that they bet big on. Jewelry is one that comes to mind that I don't think ever really turned into big businesses for Amazon, um, or or there were just very kind of capable. Uh, other companies, independent companies that just kind of did it better. 
I think the jury's still out on 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 some things that Amazon's done. Um, certainly, like Alexa has been a product hit and been important in the industry, but the idea of Alexa as a platform for third-party developers, I think the jury's out on that. Bezos, you know, on his winning streak uh, back in 2013, went on 60 Minutes to unveil the Amazon drone. And we're now nearly a decade later, and they are not yet darkening our skies. So yeah. uh, that that's something that maybe I'd put a little asterisk next to. Um, you know, and Bezos would say that you try a lot of things, um, you're going to fail, and that failure is part of the part of the uh, innovation uh, uh, ecosystem. And and then of course it goes without saying, and I tell the story in, in my new book, Amazon Unbound. The Fire Phone was a notorious kind of failure, and you know it's just interesting because. The, there's there's no more powerful technology platform than the smartphone. And you look back and you go, Amazon really got that wrong. And in my book, I describe, you know, why Bezos himself was kind of the architect of that failure. And yet you just wonder, should they have stuck it out and tried something else and kept going? Because you look at Apple right now at nearly a $3 trillion market cap um, and Amazon, you know, now all the way back down to close to a $1 trillion market cap. And it's it's all about the power of the of the uh, of the of the smartphone, and and Amazon still doesn't play there. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's an important uh, lesson to emphasize that, uh, of course, uh, innovation is uh, is very very expensive, and in order for for a company to come up with the successful uh, products, business units, programs, they need to actually experiment a lot, and uh, many of those will be cheap, many other will be very very expensive. And you mentioned uh, the example of uh, the Firephone. I mean. I guess uh, I'm not sure how many billions it costs the company an effort as well directly also from the Bezos, um, but uh, it was a, a very expensive uh, failure. And um, yeah, I think the write-off was only like two hundred million dollars, but okay. but certainly the investment in time, in time was yeah. larger. And then the the cost that they continue to pay. I mean, just just recently, by the way, they they had to disable purchasing, uh, the ability to purchase Kindle eBooks on the Android app. Um, and it's because, you know, that, that being, being uh, subservient to Google and to Apple has put Amazon in the position of constantly having to negotiate for access to their own customers. So the real cost of the Firephone debacle is that Amazon has been in a, a strategically weakened position. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a lesson that we're learning now that over time, uh, that at least for a scaled up company, those that survive and actually drive are the companies that are able to control the, the, the whole uh, supply chain of data. Meaning that if you look at uh, Google and uh, Apple, of course, they own the, the the whole platform where the 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 various products are you know then distributed to to, to users. Something that. Um, it's missing for companies like, for instance, uh, Facebook now rebranded as, uh, as Meta. And so also in part for Amazon, but Amazon actually, uh, the good thing uh, is, uh, is also it, it has built uh, over the years uh, some sort of uh, um, you know, distribution advantage, especially by building up the, the marketplace, because otherwise without that, it would have been very, very hard to actually build, uh, you know, to, to actually maintain uh, sustainable uh, advantage because uh, let's remember that uh, in the early days Amazon was built also a lot on top of um, of Google and uh, I think that right. there is um, a part in the book where you explain that uh, I don't remember in which country uh, um, but uh, anyhow they were trying to kick things off and they tried to do it without uh, um, right. Google Ads but they realized that uh, they, it was not possible they needed Google Ads. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was in Mexico, right? They, they ah, Mexico, had this yeah. Yeah, yeah expensive experiment to try to launch it without any Google advertising, and they they did billboards and they had ads in newspapers, and the traffic wasn't there. And I think Bezos has said like Amazon is Amazon in large part because of Google. You know, they were able to but but like they also had to pay a tax. And in fact, now one of Google's biggest problems is that a lot of uh, internet users start their online shopping. On Amazon, and so there's a constant battle between these big companies uh, over over the customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think probably one area where Amazon uh, successfully built that sort of uh, uh, vertical integration is probably uh, in in uh, uh, eBooks, right? Because with the Kindle, 
the Kindle is an hardware, but then also the, the, the kind of format and the standard that the Kindle has created, it's something that uh, gives Amazon a competitive advantage, though the, the, the market for, uh, for eBooks uh, might be, uh, you know, way, uh, I guess, less interesting than other uh, things like music or apps, uh, which have become a multi-trillion dollar uh, industry. Uh, right. So it would be interesting to touch uh, actually the, the, a bit of uh, the, the background of uh, the Kindle, uh, how it, it got developed, uh, you know, what was the vision. Also because, uh, as you explain uh, in the book, uh, the history of the Kindle crosses uh, the history of uh, also the founder of, um, uh, of Tesla. So... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. This, this is a, a historical irony. Um, yeah, it, people think Elon is the founder of Tesla. Um, it, it was a, a pair of, of partners, Martin Eberhard and Mark Tarpening, who, um, who way back in the 90s um, had, a, had a, basically an ebook. What was it called? The Rocket ebook. And they, were, they, they met with Bezos and he looked at it and he was contemplating an investment. And then he thought, you know, the technology is not quite there. And they ended up getting an investment from Barnes and Noble and Bezos is right and it kind of went nowhere. Uh, but a couple of years later, it, it really all started with uh, the iPod and the iTunes store and Bezos seeing his, his music business just get vaporized by, by digital music and digital downloads and probably a bit of Napster and piracy as well. And he said, okay, well, we can handle that with music, but our identity is wrapped in books. And he had seen the, the Rocket ebook early and he thought, you know, if anybody figures this out, we're gonna see the same decline in our book sales and books at that time were the kind of engine powering Amazon's barely profitable, uh, um, probably at the time sort of technically unprofitable uh, um, business model. And he thought, you know, we've got to do this. And so he start the, starts this project inside Amazon. Um, his board thinks he's nuts. He, they think he's got to focus on, on getting the company to profitability and not investing in, in crazy new things. Um, and he, you know, he manages it himself. It takes multiple years. They, they have a hard time getting the supplies uh, that they need. Um, and, and he micromanages the design. He's not a great designer. So the first version of it comes out looking slightly bizarre, kind of like a clone, big clone of a, of a BlackBerry. Um, but the intuition was right. And you know, even though it's not a big business, because frankly, people don't read as much as they watch or listen, um, it, you know, Amazon drew a moat uh, around its its biggest business, its most important business, uh, identity-wise, which was the book business. And but I will just say, and this is really the story I'm telling at the end of the Everything Store, there was a significant cost because Amazon had to muscle the book publishers to making to digitizing their catalogs, and they did that in a very sort of ruthless and draconian way, often with threats. And I think it ended up probably um, shaping the negative reputation that Amazon carries through to this day about how it operates with partners and in the larger business community. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And there was also, um, you know, a, a, like a moment where uh, they were trying to kick uh, this uh, off with, uh, by, by leveraging on Apple, right? But uh, things uh, didn't work out. Um, like they, they were trying to, you know, have a, um, you know the the the, the ebooks uh, uh, going also through 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 Apple, but then Apple had uh, its own plan for for um, right. I mean, I think that well, way back at the beginning of this, I think I think that Amazon and Apple talked a little bit about music. This was when the iPod was released, but the iTunes Store hadn't yet come out. So we're talking early two thousands. And Amazon was wanted to bill itself as maybe Amazon could be the store for the iPod, and Apple rejected that. Steve Jobs wanted a you know a holistic experience, and Amazon quickly realized that Apple you know was a, a danger to its business, and and that and and so you know years later, um, Steve Jobs recognized he was never interested in books. He he thought it was a small business. But he did recognize with the Kindle that Amazon had achieved a sort of digital beachhead and that it, it could expand there and be a threat to Apple's interest in, in music and video. And that's when he ordered the iBooks store 
and a kind of competitive response. But Apple never made a digital e-reader, and and I think that at that point the company sort of realized that um, they were they were going to be uh, rivals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, uh, going forward, um, it's uh, interesting. Also, you know, I I look uh, especially at uh, financials of companies and try to understand their business models. And today, when I look at um, AWS, of course, uh, as we said, this has become a company uh, in its own sake. And it's interesting also to notice how the transition uh, from, from Jeff Bezos to, to, you know, to Andy Jesse actually was a transition uh, inside the company where you know, the, the, the CEO of AWS took over the whole company, which uh, says it all, I guess. Well, what's a bit, a bit of the story behind AWS? How was it conceived? And you know, over the years, how um, actually Amazon um, saw it grow uh, within? Sure. Um, this is, I just have to say, like, there is uh, success has many parents. And the story I told in the Everything Store, um, which you know, I'm, I, I talked to everyone and I'm extremely confident and, you know, it, it ended up like, and somehow antagonizing, I, I think Andy Jassy, who, you know, led it for many years. Um, I, if you recall, he wrote, actually he and Bezos's wife at the time, Mackenzie wrote one star reviews for the everything store. Um, it was, it was seen upon publication as a kind of contentious or antagonistic account, which surprised me. And I, I, I feel like the antagonism has faded over time and the, the account is more embraced. But anyways, you know, he, here's how I kind of saw it and, and chronicled it. As I, as I described, you know, the business of Amazon at that time, mid 2000s was trying to find what they were good at and to capitalize on it. And, you know, at the time they were, they were also opening up. There was, it was the web 2.0 boom and they were, you know, Amazon had been a kind of closed world and they were beginning to work with developers and create tools for developers. And that was anything, you know, that there were things like allow people to post, you know, to have Amazon sales on their, on their own website or to uh, tap Amazon sales data and, and, and bring it out, out uh, of the company. Well, so Bezos was really thinking about how could he serve developers and he kind of went off and in one of his sort of brilliant uh, invention sessions realized, you know, the, actually the thing that developers need is they need unfettered resources. He had seen it inside Amazon. You know, you, the way you constrain innovation is you limit their computing power or their access to computers or their processing power. So he thought, you know, what we need to give developers are building blocks. Um, the pieces to construct their own businesses. And he, he had brainstorming sessions where he, he, would, he would like write on a whiteboard, um, you know, the primitives that Amazon would, would uh, that developers would need to, to build their businesses, to run their businesses. So it wasn't just access to sales data or the ability to sell things on their websites. It was going to be like infrastructure. And, and the primitives that they came up with were things like storage and compute power and payments and databases. And basically, you know, very similar to the Kindle, he just authorized the kind of skunk works process. And, and the board fought him. Uh, but at that point, he had sort of accrued the political capital uh, from saving the company after the dot-com bust to kind of force it through. And his, his ownership position at the company helped. And he seeded this effort um, and so AWS, which was a business all, that already existed to help developers, became something else. It became, we're going to create the building blocks for uh, developers to run their businesses. And Andy Jassy at the time, he had been just shadow, and they had been kind of out of, a out of a job at Amazon. And Bezos said, why don't you go run this, come up with the business plan and, and, and lead it. And, and that's the story. It, it launched with uh, S3, which was storage, and EC2, which was cloud. And the teams had gone out and worked on this for years. And they came together, and they launched it. And they and, and the timing was either lucky or propitious. It was, it was the it was basically the beginning of the 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 resurgence of Silicon Valley. Um, whole new set of companies were being created around the the global financial crisis. So you had Uber and Airbnb and and all these companies, and instead of running their computing operations themselves, they they did it on Amazon services. And you know, all all the stars aligned. 
um, Amazon's competitors were kind of late to copy it. The business climate was recovering and the technology worked. Oh, and, and by the way, Amazon itself, you know, ended up being the first tester and, and eventually the biggest customer. So Amazon could grow these things really quickly. And, and that's business history. It's, an, it's, it's on track to be, I think, an $80 billion a year business this year, you know, which for, for something that isn't 20 years old is absolutely remarkable. And it's probably responsible for a lot of the corporate value that investors ascribe to Amazon today. Yeah, and I think it's also worth highlighting that probably AWS is the, 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 the first attempt of Amazon to really build a sort of platform strategy, even though at enterprise or business level, because AWS is first of all a, a platform which has a set of tools uh, for, for you know, doing many things, but uh, it's a developer platform and uh, it's extremely uh, powerful. Um, and, you know, it's interesting also to see how most of, uh, you know, the profits over the years um, for, for Amazon have come from AWS and therefore AWS it's sort of uh, used as a, as a, you know, as a, the part of the company that subsidizes, uh, subsidizes the, the other right. part, which is the, you know, the tight margin part, which is the e-commerce and the, the marketplace. So on the one side, of course, you have Amazon uh, e-commerce, which is run uh, for scale. And then on the other side, you have AWS, which is, of course, um, uh, run on both uh, like scale and margins. And it's very interesting development. It's, uh, it, it's a crazy story. So it, it really is. And, and I will say like this idea that AWS subsidizes retail. I mean, I think it's in some years maybe true, but mm -hmm. my sense has always been that AWS profits go to building more AWS. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a division that is still in, in total growth mode. Yeah. It, it's, it's another business, Amazon advertising, that I think tends to kind of rescue the margins of the retail part of Amazon. Yeah, yeah of course, advertising prime and also the third party service, uh, seller services, those are all uh, high margins uh, part. Yeah. The, the, the thing is, uh, when I say subsidize, it's also simply because as you, <laughs> As we can imagine, the, the Amazon infrastructure and the underlying infrastructure is extremely expensive. So having AWS as underlying infrastructure, I guess, uh, I'm not sure about that internally, but uh, you would pay it uh, probably in a different way. I mean, you would uh, um, have uh, way lower expenses, I guess. Exactly. That's, That's true. And, yeah. and it's one thing I think that frustrates regulators and maybe some analysts, it's that that exchange of value inside Amazon, how much does retail pay for the cloud? Yeah. Um, how do Amazon white label products um, benefit from Amazon advertising and high placement in the search engine? That's all totally opaque, right? The world does not know that. And if you were to split it all apart and everyone would have to pay uh, uh, you know, fair market rates, then the economics of this company look a lot different. Yeah. And going forward to the uh, 2010s, like uh, especially, I think uh, one of the most important aspects for Amazon was to try to expand uh, uh, internationally. Uh, what were some of the, the lessons that uh, Amazon learned? I guess, uh, what were some of the really uh, most difficult countries for Amazon to to? Uh, yeah. yeah, and this is really, this is, I have a chapter on this in, in Amazon Unbound. Um, you know, the, the first, phase of Amazon's international growth was the, was, were the obvious countries, Japan, the UK, France, uh, you know, eventually moving out from there. But it, then it stopped for many years because Amazon was kind of trying to get its house in order and working on, on things like the Kindle and AWS and, and eventually Alexa. Uh, and, and then early in the, in the, in the 2010s, the international expansion resumed. And, and first it was Spain and Italy, and that was fine and went pretty well. And then they go to India. And that, that is, has been, well, actually we should say they tried China in, in, uh, in the early 2000s. It was one of the biggest mistakes and failures that the company made, but arguably Amazon was never going to succeed in China. And, and now we're seeing that even the internet giants, the tech giants like Alibaba are having a hard time with the government there. Um, but Amazon tried to parlay some of its wisdom, a hard, hard got wisdom from China into India. And it's been a 10 year journey. And similarly, I think to China, it's like, the, it's, it's not all that clear that the, that the government, you know, with its kind of nationalist tendencies 
once an American company there. And the regulatory environment has always been challenging. Um, Amazon's never been allowed to operate as a retailer. It just has to have a third-party marketplace. Some of the things that's done to try to get around that have been penalized. Um, and I, my sense is that they still probably lose a lot of money in India. Mm -hmm. They've moved subsequently in, into Mexico, which we talked about. Um, you know, and and the international expansion, I think, has been has been slow, and and that part of the balance sheet, you know, has always been challenging for for Amazon. Um, you know, part of it is just the I think the overall international sentiment towards U.S. tech companies, and part of it is like just you know, a Amazon's a, a business of moving things, moving atoms, of getting things to people's houses, and you know that transportation systems and infrastructure is just different and less developed in, in a lot of the world. Mm. Yeah. And uh, in, like uh, in, in China, of course, uh, it was uh, very, very difficult. It was, uh, it was, uh, th there was no incentive uh, to, to get into market where the government was, uh, you know, coming against you. Um, and I guess in India and Mexico, of course, uh, they, they were a kind of different markets. So it was very hard internationally, as you said, to expand compared to, to other European markets. Um, but, um, you know, go, going forward, uh, how, uh, like, uh, what was Amazon's main uh, growth strategy then to uh, really uh, get through uh, those, uh, those international markets? I mean, I think it started as, as like, let's port the, uh, the, the existing model over how we do things in, in the US and Western Europe. And then ultimately, there was a dawning realization that, you know, after you hit the, the most developed countries, um, it was going to be it was going to be harder. Um, and so in India, they had to do things like, you know, find different kinds of transportation, and they couldn't rely on the national postal carrier or the UPSs of the world because they didn't really operate there or they were less reliable. And so, you know, in some, like India is one of the first countries where, excuse me, we see Amazon really own the last mile. And, you know, they, they were relying on UPS and the, and the United States Postal Service in the US. And in India, they're hiring drivers and, and bicycle messengers. And now, you know, we see Amazon vans crawling our, our neighborhoods in the in the US and in Western Europe. And it's because Amazon learned how to do it in these other countries. So they really, I think in China was critical, like in realizing the one size fits all e-commerce framework just wasn't going to work everywhere. Yeah, and uh, uh, there is also another point that I think the opposite scenario where at a certain point when they saw the rise of um, other players like, uh, like uh, Wish, they tried to implement a model where uh, they enabled uh, like Chinese uh, merchants to, to sell stuff on top of Amazon, but they also had many uh, backlash uh, on, on, on that kind of strategy, right? I mean, what happened there? Um, okay, so this is the marketplace, right? Um, yeah, okay, so I'm t I told a story at Amazon Unbound, and the marketplace was a, a probably the, the most profitable part of Amazon's retail business. And this is allowing other companies to sell on amazon.com. And then they realized around 2012, 2013, that they're, they're at risk of being kind of outmaneuvered by not just Alibaba in China, but by some startups in the US, which were basically tapping a low cost Chinese goods and Chinese sellers. They vast explosion of entrepreneurship and, and uh, ingenuity and scrappiness in China. Uh, and and those, those companies were allowing those sellers to, to sell cheap things to customers in the US and Western Europe. And Amazon's marketplace had primarily been you know, regional or local. And Amazon you know, had to move pretty quickly to open a business um, or reopen a business in China where they had failed to create a local business and to allow you know, to court Chinese sellers and to say, you know, here's how easy it is to sell on Amazon and we'll help you ship your stuff over the West and, um, you know, and to catch up uh, with those other companies. So, okay, they did that. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly you had everything from you know, $5 jeans to hoverboards, um, you know, to low cost electronics flooding to, to customers in Europe and America. 
That sounds great, right? Well, there was, as you say, a backlash because Amazon made it really easy. They were moving quickly to try to head off competitors. Their nightmare, I'm sure, was that Alibaba, the juggernaut of China, would go and establish a beachhead in, in the US. And so they made it really easy for Chinese sellers to sell on Amazon and probably sellers elsewhere. And they didn't have a lot of guardrails. And suddenly you had those $5 jeans were ripping after the first time you wore them or the hoverboards were exploding in the flames that actually really happened. Or there were other dangerous products. And Amazon, like a lot of tech companies said, oh, we're just a marketplace. We shouldn't be held responsible for these things. And, you know, it was, there were all sorts of lawsuits. There were, you know, the press had a field day telling these stories. Uh, people's houses burned down in some cases because of faulty lithium ion batteries. And Amazon ultimately realized that it was going to have to take some responsibility for the products and build some safeguards uh, in, into the marketplace. And it's still struggling with that because, you know, once as companies like Facebook, you know, and Google have found out, like once you create a sort of anarchic anything goes forum, um, people get used to that and get very good at, 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 at uh, avoiding any of the rules you want to institute. So now it's a cat and mouse game. Mm -hmm. And how do you see the, um, the issue uh, and, uh, you know, various complaints that um, Amazon, for instance, has, has been using uh, the, the, the data uh, it gathers on the platform, on the marketplace to actually uh, also uh, help its own products, so the Amazon right. basics products. I mean, because of course there is a key point here where, uh, which is also a point that I guess Amazon has been making, uh, which is about uh, also other uh, physical retails. You know, do you have information about the store, which products sell more in which part of the the, the store, and all this stuff. So um, how is this different, if any, from from? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And 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 let's kind of kind of set the set the story here. Um, yeah, about five years ago, Amazon it really digs into this, this um, you know, common move in retail, which is white label products or private label. You know, they make their own, um, they make their own power strips or or um, you know painkillers and, and they sell it on Amazon under the Amazon basics or, or, or other brands. Now, yeah, as you say, all sorts do this. Um, and oftentimes, you know, they look at what's selling well, or they look at industry trends to figure out what to do next. The, the critique, the complaint against Amazon, and I illustrate this in my book, is that the, the managers who were responsible for these white private label products, they were getting deep in the, in the data of third parties um, who were running their businesses on Amazon and looking at, okay, you know, in the vast, um, array of multivitamins, you know, that you could sell, you know, what, what's, what's doing, you know, what's doing the best here, where should we go next? And, and they looked at a third party retailer and they said, um, you know, okay, well, look, it's, it's like, you know, multivitamins for kids. I, there, there, there's much more, there's so many skews so they could get really detailed into figuring out what works. Now, Amazon explicitly said they had a policy forbidding that. And they still say that every time they're asked about it in front of Congress or, or in front of regulators. But the fact is, and it's been, it was illustrated in my book and, and it's, it's been shown elsewhere, that the managers who like all managers in Amazon are just striving to like stay, stay hired and get their bonuses, um, that they broke the rules, you know, that it was very easy that the internal safeguards weren't there. And I don't think Amazon's ever properly kind of fallen on that sword and, and admitted that it happened. They've tried to kind of scurry out of it. And it'll be interesting to see because there are a bunch of regulators looking at it, whether they're really called to account for what was a little bit of internal anarchy at Amazon. And then anything goes like, put your hand in the cookie jar attitude in terms of looking at that data. I don't know that it necessarily helped Amazon, by the way. Again, it's, it's not that hard to like access public sources of data about what is selling well, but nevertheless, they broke their own rules. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to to close this up, uh, going forward, um, you know, how uh, do you see like Amazon, especially in light of uh, of uh, the 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 new edition of uh, of Amazon Unbound, and also for Jeff Bezos, what's uh, what's the focus right now? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, thanks. That's really where we are now. It's uh, Bezos has in large part kind of moved on to other things. He's still chairman of the board, but you just get the sense watching him that he's really more invested in his private space company, Blue Origin, um, you know, which lags badly uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX, but Bezos is spending more time there. He's fully invested now in giving away his, his uh, you know, $200 billion fortune and working on a, a climate philanthropy. He's also enjoying life to an extent that he probably hasn't in the past. He is out there on the town with his partner, Lauren Sanchez. And it's unclear to me how much time he reserves for Amazon. Jassy says he talks to him uh, you know, regularly. Um, I, don't, I, I thought at the beginning that Bezos was going to be a kind of active behind the scenes sponsor at Amazon with the things that interested him like healthcare or the, the satellite initiative. But my sense is that Bezos has kind of moved on. Um, he's, a, he's an active board member but not no longer an operator at Amazon in any meaningful sense. And so the future for Amazon, I think is, is, is um, am ambiguous right now because the company as we've just been talking about has, has thrived by always coming up with something new, by inventing the new thing, by figuring out what they've been good at and how that can be used in another way. And Bezos was the kind of inventor in chief. And he also drove these things with his own personal capital inside the company. He often in some bad directions, but he drove them. And it's hard for big companies to innovate and disrupt themselves. So can Jassy do that? I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a very respected executive inside Amazon. He's also operating in a totally different macro climate. The, the Amazon stock price is down 40% in, in a year. That creates all sorts of strains for employees who are, are, are um, compensated with uh, equity. And he's a little bit less of a charismatic leader than Bezos. And he doesn't, doesn't have the halo, the magical halo of being the founder. And so, I don't know, I think it's interesting. It's gonna be tough for Amazon. We, we can though look back at the sweep of these 25 years and my two books on the company and say, mm -hmm. it has proven the naysayers wrong in the past. And so, I still give it a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and feel like maybe there are a couple more tricks up uh, up Amazon's sleeve. Yeah, yeah, it would be it would be interesting to to look at, and uh, I guess uh, you know the the space company is going to be a very important focus for him. And you know, uh, again, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what uh, Jeff Bezos is going to be able to achieve uh, from, uh, from. Absolutely, that. he's not that old. He's he's fifty eight, I think, yeah. uh, and so and so he's still got a couple of acts left in him. Um, at least let's hope, right? I I, I do think he's one of the you know he, he's an iconic entrepreneur mm -hmm. and um, and has the resources to make a real difference. And that's where I kind of end the book. And by the way, a podcast that I did for for Bloomberg called uh, Foundering. Uh, mm -hmm. which you can get wherever wherever you have podcasts. And I told the Amazon story in the, in seven episodes. And that's mm -hmm. where I ended. Like, I really would love to see his feet come back to the ground because I, I do think, you know, particularly with climate change, you know, he he's going to hopefully make an important difference. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Fred, for joining this conversation. It was a huge pleasure to have you. Thank you, Gennaro. My pleasure. Thank you. Mm -hmm.